0: Uh, So, I'm joined today by Nick Hudson, uh, who, as it presently stands, is the guest with the most appearances on our podcast. Uh, You will see in this podcast, as I'm sure you did in the previous two, uh, why this is the case. Um, But before I give Nick a chance to speak, I wish to say the following. Uh, I have met very few people worthy, more worthy of my respect and approbation. Um, you know, just the gracefulness and humility with which he carries himself is quite remarkable, you know, especially for an individual as knowledgeable as he. Um, it's easy to see how some arrogance can seep in, um, but I've never sensed any semblance of it. And he really is, you know, the kind of character and individual that I aspire to be like. And for that reason, among a few others, is one of the people that I really look up to. Uh, Nick, thank you so much for availing yourself and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Pile, and thank you for the the kind words. I hope the interview lives up to your expectations. I'm sure it will. (laughs) I have no doubt about it.
0: Um, But, you know, just before we get into today's uh, topic, I just wish to find out how you're doing. Um, You know, it's been a long time since we last spoke, and I know that some of the uh, listeners will also want to know about, you know, how you're doing, you know, since uh, since the last time we spoke. And obviously since then, you know, there's been the Twitter ban and everything, and a lot of people are obviously quite curious about that, and, you know, just how you felt at the time and how you're feeling about it now. Um, I think... Know, let's just briefly touch on that. Um, it's not going to take up too much of you know, the podcast today, but I just really wish to know how you're doing um, and yeah, how you're feeling and what space you're in at the moment.
1: Well, it's the strangest of times because what's been going on over the, the course of the last six months or so is that mainstream scientists and public health people have started writing articles and saying things that sound just like us, in 2000 mm-hmm. or in 2001. Whether we're talking about locking down, or wearing masks, or mandatory vaccination, or droplet and fomite transmission, there's an endless list of things that we covered early on and we said the way things are being handled is wrong. And now you see these scientists, people like Shabir Mahdi, who come out and write these articles, there could be summaries of the articles that we wrote in May of 2020 yeah. or December of 2020, depending on what, what subject we were writing on. And there's this kind of uh, pinch-me moment when you read this and you say, okay, well, that's kind of sensible, but it's a little too late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's no recognition <laughs> of that at all. I mean, uh, the, uh, a listener phoned in to Cape Talk the other day John Maytham, I think is the guy's name, and said, when are you going to have Nick Hudson on your show? And he said, there is zero chance of that happening. But all the other people on his show are now saying <laughs> things that we say yeah. and have said for yeah. two years. But yeah. there's somehow this you know, this very vague idea out there that, ooh, no, Nick Hudson and Panda, that's misinformation. Even though none of them are actually able to particularise this allegation. They can't say that. You know, when Nick says this, it's wrong because it's misinformation because it's just this broad categorical claim that I'm guilty of misinformation. Whereas what has actually been happening for the duration of the pandemic is that the main source of disinformation, forget misinformation, the main source of disinformation has been our public health officials. Mm -hmm. That's the truth. And that's now evident as the grand climb down commences. So, it puts a very interesting spin on things. It's so fascinating to watch it all come apart, the entire narrative come unstuck, and also to watch the effect that that has on people. Because some people are sort of oblivious to this, to the fact that this is what's going on, right? And they carry on as if n- nobody's changed what's being said, no facts have changed, <laughs> you nothing. Know, the goalposts haven't been yeah. shifted, yeah. And you see them still religiously wearing the mask and. You just carrying on as if there's still the new deadly virus out there, you know. Other people have called the bluff, as it were, and they're starting to see that for the last two years they've been misled by their governments, by their public health officials, by their doctors, that they've been lied to. And within that set of people, the set of reactions is also very varied. Some people are indignant and angry and kind of in a very non-compliant state, I, I've just gotten off the plane, and I saw a, a young woman. She looked like a really nice person. I'd spotted her. It's just, oh, that's such a nice face, you know. Yeah. When she, and sure enough, when that air hostess came past and said, put your mask on, she said, I haven't been wearing it since I've been on this flight for an hour. Yeah. You know, what now? Why are we doing this? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. she said, you know, she sort of made a joke. She said, oh, dear, everybody's going to die, you know. And people were laughing. Mm. They're done with it. They realized that this is all just nonsense, and that it always was nonsense, but there were also people looking very uncomfortable with their masks on and big eyes, kind of not understanding what's going on around them. Why is everybody siding with this naughty little girl yeah and why is everybody laughing at the uh, steward mm. so it's 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 a strange time, and I think it's going to get stranger yet because there are people who are very vested in the false narrative who have stake their careers and reputations on a set of statements and propositions that have been declaratively demonstrated to be false mm-hmm. and those people are some of them will dig in and go to their graves claiming that lockdowns were the best thing and cloth masks are capable of stopping the pandemic and all these completely bananas ideas that they had the sort of zero covid people the yeah. real cult covidians yeah. you know those people, will we will see those. And then I hope we'll see some people who have some humility uh, who acknowledge that mistakes were made yeah. and that we must be careful not to make them again. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, a thing that's going on that I, I, I urge people to pay attention to is this whole doctrine of pandemic preparedness, which is it's a dogma, it's a cult, it's not... Something that's based in science. There's this idea that we are going to be faced with an increasing frequency of increasingly severe epidemics in future, Mm -hmm. and it's just a notion. the, The last hundred years would suggest that the opposite is true: that we have it's very difficult to find a pandemic, and that you know when this COVID story really wasn't a good example because here we were faced with a disease that was of negligible danger to anybody under the age of 70, especially to healthy people under the age of 70. Right. Uh, it's not really something that you want to stop the world for. Uh, right. It's not something you really want to describe as a pandemic. So COVID's not a good example. Um, but these people rel- religiously believe that there is this growing threat out there. Mm-hmm. And they also have a set of beliefs that goes along the lines that they're in, in, res- in the event that there's a pandemic, there's only one right way of doing things and we've got to do that right way of doing things at a global level.
0: Yeah, like a parochialism of views.
1: Yeah, it's like so this this one-size-fits-all policy right. response and the World Health Organization knows best. And what's going on at the moment is that a treaty is being negotiated and amendments to the international health regulations are being negotiated and they all go in the direction of actually eroding national sovereignty and the ability of countries to determine their own public health policy whenever the World Health Organization decides that there has been or is in process some kind of pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely dangerous because we've seen the absolutely lunatic approaches that were adopted, this way in which lockdowns were rolled rolled out across the face of the the planet, even though they contradicted all the guidelines, even though the early signs were that they were not working, Mm -hmm. even though they've never had a place in public health planning, um, and even though no cost-benefit analysis had been performed or where cost-benefit analyses were performed and found to argue against lockdown, they were buried. Yeah. They were actually kept from the public eye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've seen how dangerous it is to have this extreme centralization and the kind of One Health policy that the, the World Health Organization and, its, um, and some of its major funders are drifting towards. It's a real threat to democracy, it's a real threat to human liberty, it's a real threat to human progress, and it needs to be stopped. But the problem is that the local press are not even reporting about this. The average man on the street has no idea that that national sovereignty and his personal liberty is being negotiated away in a conference room by a bunch of unelected officials. People like Nicholas Crisp, who's been at the forefront of all of these draconian... Um, moves towards mandatory vaccination for all people of all ages, even the people who've recovered from the disease and are already immune. You know, this is the kind of guy he is. He's extreme. He's an extremist. And he's sitting there negotiating away our sovereignty mm-hmm. and our individual rights. And people just are not aware of that because this media, which has been entirely captured by the pharmaceutical industry and its funders and uh, the, the stakeholders of, of those businesses, are just simply not, allo- not allowed and, and not willing to um, to drift from this official narrative, the false narrative. Mm-hmm. They must toe the line, and so they are not reporting these events. They're not describing to the public what is going on. Yeah. They're keeping it from the public. In fact, they know. Yeah. They're not. They're not saying anything about it. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that's interesting to watch is, of course, this. Uh, the, 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 there's a there's sort of a parallel universe. If you, if you read in independent media what is going on with the, the whole vaccine project, um, you, you get a completely different read from what you get if you read mainstream media. So if you read the independent media, you will find out that, the, um, for example, uh, there was a Freedom of Information request delivered against the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration in America, uh, requesting that the FDA share the data from the Pfizer study, the clinic phase three clinical trials upon which the emergency use authorization was based. And the courts ruled in favour, but there was a very interesting step in between. The FDA tried to persuade the courts to allow to release the data over decades. I can't remember the exact number, but something like 75 years what? they asked for to release the data that they had reviewed in 108 days. Yeah. Now, why? By that time, all of the officials will be dead. You know. Why would you do that? Well, you do that if you've, if you've got a fraud that you're trying to conceal. And the courts fortunately ruled against the FDA and ordered them to release the document over a matter of months. And those documents are all being released now and being studied all over the world by independent people. And what we're finding is damning. It's absolutely damning. Those Phase three trials are not worth the paper they're printed on. They proved nothing. And that's where this idea of the 95% efficacy came from, that original thing that we were told, 95% effective the vaccines are. And then what also emerges is that there was absolutely no basis. We suspected it at the time. There was never a basis for this idea that Fauci and Valensky, the director of the CDC, and Burla, the CEO of Pfizer, promoted, which was that the vaccines would prevent transmission, that they would turn the person who received a vaccine into a dead end for the epidemic, and therefore, if we vaccinated everybody, the epidemic would actually finish. COVID would vanish from the face of the earth, you know. That was false. There was never ever a basis for expecting the vaccines to perform like that. In fact, their their very mechanism of action leads one to see quite plainly that they had no hope of performing like that so this was a complete misrepresentation and they knew it it's disinformation what they and uh, on the back of that story completely fabricated story that the va- story that the vaccines would stop transmission the Pfizer vaccine was marketed to governments all over the world and in quantities that were only necessary or contemplatable if your trajectory was on this kind of zero covid strategy but it was a lie. And so everywhere, everybody over-ordered. You needed maybe enough vaccines to vaccinate the the small minority of people who are in the at-risk population and who had not yet recovered from COVID. We're talking about two or 3% of the population, maybe 5% in aging countries. The rest, you could have just left alone, there was no need. So you needed to buy like 95% less, 95% fewer vaccines than you did. And now you see countries like Poland turning around and reneging on their contracts because they're saying, listen, you made false claims, it was fraudulent, we don't have to be bound by this contract because of that fraud, and so we're not taking all your vaccines, keep them. And you see vaccine manufacturer plants closing down because there isn't enough demand. Sure. So there's backlash, and I think that will continue, there will, as, as it, it eventually it will break through into the public mindset at the moment, if you speak to a journalist from one of these controlled entities like the Daily Maverick or Becker-Seaser or Business Day or The Star or News Online or whatever it is, News 24, they will still tell you that, oh, no, no, the vaccines, they work, they're saving lives, they're safe and effective, all the, all the usual talking points. They will, they will not pay any attention to all of this massive and scandalous information that's been revealed over the last, the course of the last few months, all of the statistics pointing to the fact that these vaccines apparently do very little. You know, there's almost no evidence to suggest that they're they're very effective at all, and some evidence to suggest that we have to actually contemplate the idea that they're causing aggregate mortality to increase, not to go down. Now that's the science coming out of the UK at the moment, um, and so it's, so it's very parallel universe stuff. And it makes for a very strange time. So that's a very long answer to answer your question. I'm doing okay under those circumstances. I'm tired and I want this thing to stop and I want people to come to their senses. But I think it's going to be a very long road ahead still.
0: Yeah, sure. So there's so much in what you've said and there's so much that I want to pick up on. Um, And I'm trying to condense now what I've just heard from you. Um, And the one thing that comes through for me and that has come through over the past few months that I've known you... Is just your drive to find out what is true, yeah. um, and I think maybe in keeping with that theme, in that with that theme of finding out what is true and perhaps defending the method by which we discover what it is that is true, that David Deutsch touches on in Beginning of Infinity. Um, what you reminded me of was Stephen Pinker's Enlightenment Now, um, in which he also launches a defense for enlightenment uh, values. One of which is obviously this method of inquiry that you and I are now going to talk about. Um, He also very interestingly um, points out, and you very accurately said it in your speaking term now, um, that the trajectory of pandemics is going down and has been going down for a very, very long time. And Steven Pinker got into a lot of trouble for saying such things. And COVID was brought up as this fork in the road, you know, of the argument that he was making. And I think you've done a very good job in, you know, dismissing it as the fork in the road that was once claimed to be. Um, but I think maybe in keeping up with, you know, David Deutsch and, you know, the beginning of infinity, I must confess that I have not yet read the whole book, but I have read bits and pieces of it, and I've done a lot of research on it and was very uh, pleased, actually, to find out that Paul K- Karl Popper was one of the influences um, for this book, uh, who I have read and am a huge admirer of. And I think maybe just to begin talking about the book, I must say that it has a lot of physics in it, um, about which I know very little, and I'm just a curious, you know, layperson, uh, because I obviously don't have the sufficient scientific background to you know, fully grasp the physics of the book, so maybe we can spend a little bit of time on that, but, you know, not too much. But there is so much in the book that I wish for us to discuss, um, and I think the Opening segment, um, you know, just meshes in very well with what I wish to talk about now. Um, so, you know, just talking about Popper, he mentions the scientific method of discovering what it is that's true and what it is that's not, and by extension, you know, what is a good explanation and what isn't. Um, so, uh, and and I think maybe to talk to the uh, opening um, remarks that you have just made, how do people determine what it is that's true? How do we know what is a good explanation and what isn't? Because it seems to me that you have a very um, particular way of determining. Uh, or a pe- particular method, I think, is the more important thing. You know, so I, I think the method is far more important than the outcomes that you reach. So I think you've got a very interesting method by which you discern what it is that's true and what it is that's false, um, at, at least in your view, and you know the methods that we use to come up with what it is that's true and what it is that's false. Um, so I, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about that and, of course, why David Deutsch is such a huge influencer o- of yours. Sure. Sure.
1: Um. Yeah, I think it's reasonable to describe Deutsch as having uh, generalized the Popperian framework, extended it beyond the realms of what I might describe as narrow science. The idea, to to summarize Popper, the idea of Popper really is that knowledge, knowledge growth, knowledge generation, proceeds by way of conjecture and criticism that the way in which knowledge evolves is by way of somebody coming up with an hypothesis, a conjecture, an explanation. Those are the terms that are used, more or less equivalently. And that explanation then being exposed to criticism. Falsification, another term for it. Refutation, another term. And that is in some quarters described as falsification or falsificationism. And it's a kind of approach that says, look, you can never say with absolute certainty that some explanation is true. All we have is good explanations that are surviving the test of time and multiple attempts to Refute. refute them. Right. And so a theory is never said to be true in an absolute sense. It's merely said to have not yet been proven false. And in fact, uh, adherents of this school of thinking very often say things like, all, all explanations are false. We just don't know why yet, in, in all cases. and Or they will say that all explanations are destined to be replaced by better ones. And so they'll use an example like Newtonian mechanics. Now, Newtonian mechanics was used very successfully in all sorts of applications no problems whatsoever for a couple of hundred years. And then along comes Einstein with another explanation that completely contradicts the Newtonian mechanics. And people had to think very hard about what experiments you'd perform to, f- to try and falsify one of the two. And in the end, the, the sort of clinching experiment involved a very complex uh, astronomical observation um, at the time of eclipse, watching what happened to the passage of light from a star located behind the sun. So did we see the light bend or not? That was the essential question. And detailed measurements had to be made, and people had to be sent all around the world to station themselves in the right locations in order for the required observations to be made. And that experiment very famously refuted the Newtonian mechanics. It it didn't refute Einstein's theories, Mm -hmm. But the measurement was only made because of Einstein's explanation. Nobody would have thought to make that experiment to refute Newtonian mechanics until another explanation, a competing explanation, sure. came along. So that, in a nutshell, is what the Popperian framework is about. Popper has a kind of demarcation going on where he says that if, if a theory is not falsifiable, then it's not scientific. So he, he classes knowledge into scientific and non-scientific, if you like, using this demarcation. What Deutsch says is that, no, he doesn't go along with that. all knowledge, all of, of all sorts, all explanations of all sorts, whether, whatever domain they're in, are in principle falsifiable, even if we don't know how to falsify them at the moment. And so he would say we always look to get closer to the truth, to correspond to reality in all domains, whether we are talking about morality or aesthetics or science, as we traditionally understand it. And the Deutschian the analysis is, is I, find, I, I find, very persuasive and very powerful. And, of course, what it suggests is that there is an objective moral reality. There is an objective aesthetic reality. And I, I don't have a problem with those ideas. I think that the relativist conception is wrong. The idea that, for example, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. We know because great works of art are independently admired by you know, d- diverse people.
0: Surely a uh, spanner in the works can be thrown there, though. Um, so you use art as an example, and I think that's a pretty good example to use to you know, verify um, the uh, analogy that you're speaking of now. Um, but I think morality is a much more difficult one to place in the in, e- in either box, be it relative or objective. I, I think it falls somewhere in the middle because I mean it's clear to me that the or what we det- or what we c- claim to be moral today and what was claimed to be moral a hundred years ago aren't quite the same things. Perhaps the bases may be the same, um, and I think that's the uh, uh, at least the underlying principle of objectivism that you know. Uh, Inuits, for instance, will chew the boots of the men who are going out, not because you know chewing boots is some uh, lavish thing that we can do in all societies, but because they do so to as an expression of love and to warm up the boots for those that are going out. So perhaps the chewing of the boots itself might not be considered universal uh, and objective, but the underlying principle, that the reason they're doing it, is what's universal. I've heard arguments of that nature. Um, so, I, mean, I, I think you could make the argument with art, but I'm not so sure you could proceed in the same way with morality. Well,
1: the, way, the way the Deutschian philosopher would respond to that is to say, yes, in the standards of the past were, are different from the standards of today. But that's another way of saying that we replaced the explanations of the past with better ones. Um, so, for example, you might... Uh, Contemplate uh, the notion of slavery, the, the, the institution of slavery. At some point, uh, at many points in history, slavery has been considered to be a completely moral, a completely moral enterprise. No problem with, with the idea that human a human can be owned by another human being. But it took a different set of moral explanations for people to perceive that moral reality persisted or was involved. A recognition of, let's call it, the divinity in every human being, the, the agency um, of every human being, the, the, the value, the inhabitant
0: of the breast, as Adam Smith will call
1: it, the inhabitant the, of the breast. Exactly, these kinds of ideas, those are by, those are really moral explanations. They are, are th- theories, hypotheses, if you like. That um, you know, if a society adopts them, does the society do well? Does it become a flourishing society, a generative society, or not? That's kind of the the criticism, the test, the refutation would be okay. So, in a society characterized by authoritarianism and slave-like status for most of the population, how does that society compare compare to a free society where people are where people's have rights that are protected by the state and so on? And you would look and say, okay, does the Soviet Union grow fast or does America grow fast? And you would make conclusions on you know about which system. Is preferable it's kind of a way of testing
0: the explanations and those are moral explanations but 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 even that um, you know ensconced within that is the presupposition that you know we should prioritize growth over non-growth and I think that is that is in itself worthy of an explanation absolutely and 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 so
1: my answer to that is that you know knowledge growth should be prioritized and a side effect of knowledge growth is economic growth why because knowledge growth Con- what, what it consists of, what it is, is solving problems. You know, new knowledge is created in response to a perceived problem. And what I mean by problem is not necessarily like uh, some, you know, some development, adverse development. A problem could be um, just the absence of something that we want or the, the presence of something that we don't want or an inconsistency that we've observed in our thoughts in our actions or something that then there's a problem and new knowledge is what solves problems Mm -hmm. and we want to solve problems we want to create new knowledge a side effect of creating new knowledge is economic growth because you solve you finding efficient ways of doing things better ways of doing things Mm -hmm. ways for people to have more um, of what goods services happiness time whatever how you how you apply the growth, or the the, the fruits of the labor, is a separate question. Mm-hmm. That comes to morality. You know, do we do we choose to spend our money on on the the trinkets, the the baubles, or do we spend them on things that um, are more experiential, that um, have more benefit for other people or for Nature or whatever. Those are that's another matter altogether. But I would suggest that knowledge growth is kind of an ultimate virtue. That's the high. It's a it's a it would have to be called a it's a conjecture, the idea this idea. Maybe maybe the ultimate moral good is that which supports knowledge growth, and the ultimate moral evil is that which destroys the means of error correction so that we keep making the same mistakes and we never improve. And uh, so I, I feel quite strongly that, that, that no growth, growth is uh, an, an unfettered good. Yeah. It's what we do with it that is worth consideration yeah. and worth analysis of, from,
0: uh, of a sort that I would call moral realism. Yeah, no, 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 I entirely agree with that. So yep. the reason I asked the question was because it seems to me, um, or oh, well, certainly what I got from you know doing research about the book, is that um, you you've got to be able to at least explain uh, even the um, uh, the presuppositions that you bring into the arguments that you correct um, make. Yes. And growth seems you know a pretty intuitive um, axiom um, that, that that we all accept. You know we should be growing uh, in more ways than one. You know not just economically, not just uh, you know uh, uh, mentally or you know in terms of Uh, Spirituality, etc., but it it seemed to me that it was important to be able to provide sufficient explanation as to why that is the case. And I think maybe that's where um, I I have a bit of a a confusion, um, so to speak, because it seems to me that if you're going to demand an explanation for everything um, that is believed, then you know I, I don't think you're going to get very far because every single thing that presupposes that. Uh, has to be explained, so the explanation must get an explanation in and of itself, basically, and the premises that underlie that particular explanation must themselves be explained um and it, it seems to me that that's uh an endless rabbit hole um that nobody's going to get to the bottom of well,
1: that 's where the the term infinity is important mm. in the title of the book right the fact that we lack explanations for so many phenomena is doesn't cause us to challenge the idea that good explanations are, are a good thing right. and that we'd like to have explanations for these complex phenomena. Um, you know, th- I mean, the, the important point is that knowledge generation only takes place by way of an evolutionary process of, of conjecture and criticism. And in order for that to happen, you need diversity of thought and opinion. You need competing conjectures and competing criticisms. And when you centralise, what you do is you take away that competition because you get the one-size-fits-all mm. policy or explanation. And you find very quickly, after you've centralised, what will follow on the heels of centralization is censorship because you need to stifle the person who has spotted the falsifying observation. Sure the institutional weight then gets behind the single idea the one bad idea and preserves it and that is exactly what has gone on with covid i was banned from twitter i have had radio station after radio station fall in, into the pattern of refusing to interview me not not like they don't want to you know it's not a matter that they that whenever they have me there they want to have somebody else to explain to me why i'm wrong no they don't want to hear They can't argue against it. It's fatal for them to have a debate because the line that they're pushing is wrong. So their only alternative is censorship, and that's what that's what happens. Cancel culture, censorship, smearing campaigns—this kind of thing—is the way that you have to proceed if you have stepped out of the domain of conjecture and criticism into the domain of huge monomaniacal belief structures that are unsupported by observational data, that are contradicted, in fact, by the observational data. So that's the world we're in, is we've taken a giant step back from the Enlightenment thinking, we've taken a step away from knowledge growth, and we are finding ourselves in structures and cult-like philosophies and ideologies that advocate for things that guarantee stasis or deterioration even, they guarantee them. This, 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 uh, this is what I would refer to as the, the epistemological basis for organisational structure. You do not want one person taking decisions for everybody on any subject, no matter how well trained that person is, no matter how many people love that person, admire that person, no matter how much money that person has. Would that extend to religion? Absolutely. And, you know, people... That's a great question because, you know, even if you look at the evolution of religions, if you conceive of them as evolving cultural traditions, you see periods when religious institutions have decentralized and periods where they have centralized. There's a very... a very famous centralization process took place in—I want to say it was in the fourth century. I might get, be getting my dates right, but the Council of Nicaea. Mm-hmm. What what was that about? No, they wanted a universal dogma. It's centralization. It wasn't good enough that each bishop in every port was preaching a slightly different version of the or emphasizing different elements of the the kind of, let's call it the Christian philosophy at that stage. That wasn't, that wasn't okay. Somebody decided you needed to have a one-size-fits-all dogma. And so there was this kind of promotion of a centralizing meme. And then you, what you'd have is an event like the, uh, the Reformation, where there's a schism and, and suddenly the belief structure or the, or the, the institutional structure fragments and they're competing ideas about how Christianity should, should best be practiced. Right. And so you can even look at religion as sort of being one of those uh, institutions that is uh, in danger, repeatedly, of finding too much centralization, leading to um, ossification of hierarchy and stasis. And then, at some point, a level of irrelevance and non-performance that causes the system to collapse, to fragment, to dissipate, and then you get the generative processes starting again leading to accretion of wealth, leading to centralization. You know, so you can sort of see all of these things. China as a as a as an example is a wonderful one. The history of China, because it's got such a long recorded history, you can see these waves of centralization and decentralization. And the centralization getting too strong and causing a kind of uh, stasis and and cultural decay that then causes the 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 ruling elite to collapse the the the, the um, control structure to collapse that then leads to this period a period of kind of laissez faireism or and that's associated with growth and uh, genera- generativity and so on and so it goes in these cycles and I think very few institutions are really immune to such cycles it's very hard we don't, maybe that's the kind of explanation we ought to be working on is the t- kind of new knowledge we need to create is how to take the steps to avoid ossification of hierarchy, extreme ossification of hierarchy, extreme centralization of power. Yeah. And to an extent, that's what constitutions do you know, in, in, in certain countries. They, they're very concerned with the, um, how power is articulated around the executive branch of government, what limitations on power are in place, what checks and balances are in place to prevent that kind of centralization. Um, and so, you know, we have technologies and explanations for how societies can be organized in ways that prevent such ossification, but they, they, they're not perfect, as we've seen. And in some quarters, people are actively trying to erode those protection mechanisms because they have decided that they know the truth and they want to impose the truth on everybody all around the world. Yeah,
0: So that's very interesting to me. I've never really thought of religion in the terms of centralization and decentralization. But now that I'm thinking about it, um, I'm, I'm not sure. It, it seems to me a bit of a contradiction in terms and for the following reason. It seems to me that religion is inherently a centralized, um, uh, I don't want to call it an institution. Um, I'll call it a philosophy uh, for lack of a better word because you've got a, a supreme deity mm-hmm. um, who can be thought of to be at the very top of the hierarchy and th- there isn't much decentralization around that. It seems to me inherently uh, centralized, um, you know, at least from that framework. Uh, is that perhaps uh, an erroneous way of looking at it? I, I think
1: it's. Um, I, I mean, I can see how you get to it because there's kind of you know th- they are even in in you know depictions of um, of religious um, uh, religious entities. You get this hierarchy of entities with sort of. God at the top and then the, the, the angels over here and the saints over here you see like a, almost a, a pyramid type structure to the sort of hierarchy of virtue being depicted like this and, and that does suggest that kind of centralization and that's one conception. But let me show you an extremely decentralised conception that is embedded into the very heart of Christianity. You know, There's this notion that man is made in the image of God. What does that mean? It means every human individual is a representation of God, and what does that do? It makes the human being, the individual, sacrosanct. It gives a divinity. Um, it and why? What? That's an idea. It's a. It's a notion. It's a story. What is the story functioning to do? It functions to cause the members of the religion, to have a certain regard for other human beings, to consider them as people worth protecting, um, as people whose agency should be respected. And when you're respecting the agency of the individual human, when you're seeing that other human being, every other human being, as divine, when you contemplate them in this fashion, what are you doing? You prevent, you're prevent. acting to prevent... The centralization of power in a way that would impose slavery or bondage on that human. So you see, the the, the religion—it's when you conceive of it, maybe in some hierarchical sense. Yes, you can point us towards some kind of centralization, but the religions are capable of embedding memes or cultural ideas, motifs that drive in the direction of decentralization, of conjecture and criticism. And there's no coincidence. I believe that the flourishing of Christianity coincided with the flourishing of the the first free societies, ones that were based on conjecture and criticism, the first non-static societies. I shouldn't say really the first, because I think the Greek city-states would be examples of flourishing societies, but they were short-lived. We had hundreds of years of a completely unique thing in human history, that kind of freedom, and what it led to was indeed a great improvement
0: in the living circumstances of just unbelievable quantities of people. Yeah, but but I mean, it also led to a lot of needless misery um, for people who didn't identify as Christians. So, and and I think that that's perhaps one of the uh, problems with centralization. You know, it's... it's, it's, opposition to anything that differs from it, as you accurately said, yes. you know, when you were talking about the COVID narrative, et cetera. Um, and I think perhaps a, a similar criticism could be, lo- could be launched against institutionalized religions because we aren't just talking about Christianity. There are a myriad of religions, not only in the world today, but that have existed over the course of history, all of which, you know, in many ways were mutually exclusive. Um, and so, I mean, it, it worries me, the dogmatism that is almost inherent in most of these um, religions.
1: Yes, and, and there's, a, I, I, there's a tension between the dogma, the institution, the tradition. and you keep your eye on all those things to understand the phenomena. So yes, when you are when you are shining a light on ossification of a religious institution or hierarchy, that is the kind of thing you will look at dogma, uh, censorship, so this, uh, the book burning, the heretics, you know right. the burning of people at the stake because they had different opinions. This, these, those would be moments. Or, or local local centralization ossification manifestations so you you're right dogma okay and institutionalized is another word of saying dogmatic you know another way of saying dogmatic but you can also look at you can you can take a step back and say okay but hold on a moment let's look at the broader tradition what is it advocating for you know you see separation of church and state in such memes as render unto caesar so you can conceive of uh, the the this evolved religious tradition having an impact on our social and political structures and our very way of thinking about the world and protecting. I would say the Christian tradition did a lot to protect the notion of conjecture and criticism because of this idea of the sanctity of the individual. Mm. And and so and is that unique to all religions? I would imagine not. I, I'm not an expert in comparative religion, but. It's quite possible that other religions also embedded such a meme. But, um, you know, certainly just from the perspective of a person who grew up in the Christian tradition, I can see those things very clearly. And I also see the kind of God-shaped hole that is left when people, owing to a low level of metaphysical conviction, throw out the entire religious apparatus. Mm. I see that as a very dangerous thing to do.
0: Uh, Surely the flip side of that coin would be fundamentalism. Yes, uh, fundamentalism is, is is, what what do we mean
1: by fundamentalism? It's a person who takes a very narrow dogmatic view of a certain text or a certain um, set of um, commandments or something like that. They, They take a radically literal view. They don't accept perspective on what the meaning of the text or on the
0: on the commandments. yeah, And, and I actually think that um, fundamentalists get, or oh, I'm, I'm never in the camp of defending some people who are religious fundamentalists, but I think they do get a lot of unnecessary flack because a lot of the things that they are fundamental about are fundamental in nature. Um, So such things as commandments, for instance. A commandment is a commandment. There is no other way of spinning it. So when somebody says, uh, for instance, thou shall not murder, for instance, like there aren't many ways, and we all agree of interpreting that. Um, But there are other passages that are interpreted by fundamentalist believers that are, I would argue, just as fundamental to the tenets of the text as, say, a commandment. Um, That fundamentalists get a lot of flack for uh, believing today, but that are, in black and white in the text that people would have believed, say, 100 years ago, um, but that they uh, disregard now because of the improvement of, you know, moral philosophy. Um, And and I think perhaps what enables fundamentalists to um, maybe get away with some of these things is the, or or a lot of the moderates who are aiding and abetting um, a lot of this behavior. So if, for instance, and this is what I've seen, and you can obviously correct me if I'm wrong, um, is you know, so, so in, in, insofar as people claim um, that a, a holy book, for instance, is um, the literal word of God, for example, what you're doing inadvertently is you know aiding and abetting the individual who takes the most extreme verse in there and applies it, um, and we can use examples of the Taliban today or ISIS, for example. People who say that ISIS are misconstruing uh, parts of the religion, I would say, Probably need to talk to a person who is a believer in the ideology of ISIS. Like those people take the text very, very seriously. Um, and I mean, the same could be said about Christian fundamentalists. Um, sure. Uh, about, you know, some of their views mm. about homosexuals, etc. Um, mm. s- some of it is abominable, um, and it isn't out of place. It's Not like they're, you know, pulling straws and you know just making these things up as they go. It's because they're reading the text and they're taking it very, very seriously. And it seems to me that the more serious uh, an individual is an adherent of a particular religion. Just the more uh, slippery, the slippery slope is, um, you know, leading them yes. to fundamentalism. Uh, yes. I'm not sure what you think about that.
1: No, no. I mean, I, I, I think, the, I, w- I would share your sentiments towards those sort of extreme people. And I, I, I think, but what's happening there is they take one interpretation, and the, that interpretation becomes uh, the dogmatically enshrined and. Pervious to criticism because they would simply silence or burn at the stake or whatever the, the, the critic. Um, so you know, my view would be that uh, no, hold on a second. Uh, you know, before you rush off into your particular interpretation, take a step back, look at the bigger picture. What is this? What are these books saying to you? How do they say you should treat other people and their opinions? You know, so I would, I would sort of, yeah. One of one of the features of our society at the moment is that there's... A polarisation. Everything has to be black or white. You can't be in the grey space. You're not allowed to occupy a grey space. If you, if we're talking, let's use you know the current conflict in Ukraine. You've got to either think that uh, Zelensky is God, or you're a Putin apologist. <laughs> you know, there's no room for the person in the middle saying, "Well, you know, geopolitically this is very interesting. There's always been contra- conflict in this region. NATO has been a bit provocative." Russia's been a bit reactive, it's a pity that that treaty was never honoured, the Minsk Treaty. You know, you can't sit there s- having that discussion and writing down your thoughts at the moment because somebody will turn around and say, but you're, a, you're an apologist. Or if you question the safety and efficacy of this particular mRNA vaccine and wonder why they didn't do the full battery of tests that should be done for a new therapy, you're an anti-vaxxer. Yeah. Th- there's no room for grey. And that is a very interesting signal because what it what, what it means to me is that you are dealing with a uh, propagandized world. Uh, they want to create uh, unity behind a false narrative. In order to do that, they have to have a way of dehumanizing and stigmatizing anybody who questions any element of the narrative. And you do that by making the cost of questioning very high. So you you're an academic at a university and you get that label anti-vaxxer put on you.
0: It's very dangerous. Yeah. It threatens
1: your livelihood and your future. So you'll do anything. You don't want to say anything that carries the slightest suggestion that you question the narrative.
0: Yeah. And, 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 and you know, I, I completely agree with that. And I think uh, at least part of the reason I agree with it is because for me it resembles a religion so much. Like there, is, um, like it, it, there are virtuous people and then there are demonic people. To to, reu- to, to to use the religious right. um, language um, and if you deviate from um, the virtue you're destined for eternal damnation and you cannot yes. um, you know question what is going on and I think that is part of the problem and I think it's built right into um, religion um, and I think it's because um, say it's built into I see cults. Not yeah, so yeah, and and, and dogmatism. Yeah. Like I, I would extend that to communism and you know other cult-like um, uh, ideologies. And, and I think it's because um, they have such similarities to um, religion. In my view, it's because of that that they are so objectionable. Like they don't allow for any flexibility. It's like I mean, there's this analogy of heaven and hell. Um, the good go to heaven, the bad go to hell. Um, there is no room for people who are like, wait a minute, I just want to understand what's going on there. Could you please provide some clarity for me there? And you know, perhaps in keeping um, in touch with uh, Popper and Deutsch, um, you know, s- some of these things have not been properly explained. I think C.S. Lewis perhaps does the best job in doing so, but well, even I he, um, I, I don't think sufficiently um, addresses some of the questions that are coming up from not only younger people, but that have come up um, you know, from previous philosophers, one of which is Bertrand Russell, of whom I'm a huge admirer. Um, but, but yeah, for me, it's because they uh, resemble a religious structure so much that I find them so objectionable. Um, I, I would like to live in a world in which more and more people are able to freely speak their minds, um, and, and, and that would be with regards to everything, COVID and religion, um, and I think we live in such a world where you know, people who wish to do that are uh, uh, demonized um, sure. and you know, vilified and cast asunder, and I think yeah, it, it's, it's pretty objectionable.
1: So, so what's been interesting to for me is is to see is to begin to become more sensitive to the signs of propaganda and ideology. These there's a good friend a good friend of mine, Russell Lamberti, oh. likes to talk about the electric fences. Oh. And. I realized as soon as I heard him use the concept that it was an extremely useful analogy. So this idea is that there's certain subjects about which there is an electric fence. If you touch that subject in a certain way, if you touch that fence, you get a shock, you get an immediate reaction, a cancel culture type reaction. Mm. And uh, the more and more I thought about the the electric fence and how it works, the more I realized that it's actually the guide to working out what is not true, to finding what is what lies you've been told. Yeah. If there's an electric fence around the subject, then when you are brave enough to grasp that fence yeah. and climb over it and get inside there, what you find is a stack of lies. And so what are the signs? Well, people can get cancelled and can get removed from their jobs if they question the narrative. There will be a terminology that emerges to describe the, the person who's on the you know the who's conceivable as black and white, um, then the person on the black on the black team has to be described and there's a label and the label will be a propagandized label so it would be like COVID denier was what was used by anybody who questioned the, the wisdom of lockdowns, anti vaxxer anybody who questions the wisdom of mandatory vaccination, climate denial anybody who questions whether we should
0: pursue zero carbon yeah. net zero yeah D- Douglas Murray in The Madness of Crowds calls it um, uh, landmines he says there yes. are a lot of landmines that you know you can't trip over and if you do they'll detonate they'll detonate uh, yeah yeah yes, yes, so it's a
1: pretty similar analogy yeah, in, in that analogy he's regarding them as something that's hidden to me the mm. electric fences are is a better analogy because they're very visible you I can see, see them yeah. you know that if you yeah. go there you get shocked and so uh, that's why I liked it so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I enjoyed Douglas Murray's book, and uh, he makes an enormous number of good points with respect to the sort of very decadent times that we find ourselves in. Mm. Um, but this, it, I think, what's happening is people. A lot of people are waking up, and they see, when they see the electric fence, they know that what's on the other side is bullshit. Yeah. And so it's it's kind of like you don't have. To, it's almost become you don't have to go in there and challenge their science. You just know, because of the presence of the electric fence and this this, this phrase that is going to be stuck on you if you disagree, yeah. you know, or if you question, you know that what's on the other side is bullshit. Mm. You know it. You don't, even ha- you don't even have to do the investigation. Uh, and, and it's not a bad rule of thumb. It's just, yeah. I mean, it is a rule of thumb. Mm. I'm not saying that out there there isn't some subject matter that you can't go near, and the reason is that that subject matter is, in fact, correct, and that to to negate it is morally wrong. Yeah. So you mean like like if somebody were to come out, you know, let's let's look at the, we mentioned slavery earlier. Okay, so if somebody would come out with a promotion or or, or defense of slavery, I think they would be roundly criticised and and mocked. But I'm not sure that they would need to be the cancel culture and everything. I think people would just disagree with them, regard them as crazy. They would be kind of socially ostracized maybe you wouldn't need a term for this uh you know slave apologist yeah you know you wouldn't have to say you say i oh, know but that person's we, we we you know we have a better explanation for how the world should work and how, how humans should be respected and you'd say that in a quiet and reasoned term you wouldn't try and silence that person who's promoting slavery you'd sort of let the guy go away and go around being crazy and looking crazy and as a kind of lesson to everybody else almost When when you're trying to silence the opposition, censor them, call them names, um, label, destroy the intermediate territory, the grey zone, so that everything's black and white, when you're doing those things,
0: you are on the side of evil. Yeah, and also, (laughs) you're reminding me of something that was said by Salman Rushdie, another one of my heroes. Um, He obviously had that uh, scandal with the Ayatollah Khomeini for writing a book that was critical of Islam and right. there was a bounty on Static his head. Yeah, yeah, there was a bounty on his head and uh, he, he makes the point um, that the, the reason um, the reason censorship is so bad is not only because um, you, you're not going to silence the censor. You're not, you don't drive the speech out of existence. What you do instead is you drive it underground and in many ways you make it more dangerous because you give it the excitement of taboo. Um, And we know all too well, um, you know, the human proclivity for eating from the forbidden fruit. And I think it's well encapsulated in uh, Genesis, actually, um, that, you know, we we have uh, a proclivity for uh, that which is taboo and that which is bad. And I think uh, one of the dangers that the senses run into um, is exactly that, you know, even that's mainly how Christianity grew. It was under oppression. um, And I think that's what... um, appeal to a lot of people and made the movement grow and i think that's another danger that a lot of people who are censoring stuff uh run mm-hmm. into you know they just make that which they're censoring a lot more um uh, appealing for the curious mind hmm. yeah yeah i think i think there could be
1: well there very definitely is a, an impact like that yeah
0: yeah yeah and, and and i think maybe to um maybe wrap this up you've got um Oh you you sent me another one of the books that was hugely influential in your line of thinking and I think it ties in quite well with what we're talking about now um Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago mm-hmm. um and he talks a lot about um truth and you know uh, narratives and why you should not go along with what you know to be false um or at the very least yeah or what you know to be false yeah, yeah. um and I think it, it's one of the most powerful um books I mean also given how it was written where it was written and about what it's uh, written um, that makes you know just such a powerful book. Yes, and he, he I mean, I've, I, I've thought about him and that book so many times during this whole
1: um, terrible period, um, because he really shines the light on a number of the practices. You know, he points out that the most that the way you break people down and de- is by and, and degrade them is by forcing them to lend credence to a lie, to participate in the lie. And so that's one of the reasons why I've been so vehemently against the universal mask mandates. We can see that it's a lie. Um, you can see that the supporting research is biased. That there's an electric fence around the issue. That you're an anti-masker. All of those features I mentioned just now. Okay, yeah. so it's a lie. And people, but people have said to me, "But why do you go after that issue? I mean, there's no, there's no downside to wearing a mask. It's just a just a little piece of cloth. You know why? I, I just wear my mask just to keep the peace. You know." And I say, no, mm-hmm. by participating in a lie, you lend credence to it. By forcing people who know that it's a lie to wear the mask, you are degrading them. You are not recognising their agency. Okay? And so for me, it's a, a really strong matter of principle to encourage others to stand up against the lie and to not wear the mask, to take off the mask to The non-compliance is a drive for me. It's important. Virtue lies there, okay. Sure. And that's a very Saltenerson type idea. The other one we mentioned earlier, this this idea of sort of the lack of the gray territory, the idea that they're good people and bad people, you know, um, um, you know, and and so that the, the, you, the world, the whole world, dividing into two camps. Tennyson's line is the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. Much better concept. Yeah. Much better conceptualization, yeah. and and so in, you, if you if you think of it that way, uh, what does it do? It's an idea that promotes reflection and contemplation and,
0: and responsibility as well.
1: Testing your own assumptions, yeah. you know, and and uh, so so I, I, I am a huge admirer, and I've become a greater admirer through the epidemic of Saltzendorf. Um, there have been some I maybe just by way of wrapping up, I tell a little story about how, how there was this odd. Uh, convergence. When I picked up The Beginning of Infinity and began reading it after having heard David Deutsch in an interview by Sam Harris and being very impressed with what he had to say, I um, was delighted, and I think it was about the third chapter, to read him citing a man by the name of Jakob Brnovsky, Jacob Brnovsky, who had. Uh, he was a public intellectual he was most famous for a bbc production called the ascent of man as a very young kid i was maybe 14 when my grandmother put in my hands a copy of the book that that was based upon this this iconic series or the bbc production and i loved that book i read it from cover to cover time and time again i gazed there was, there was wonderful illustrations and Looked at them and understood their meaning, and I was—it was probably the, my first early strong intellectual influence. And there it is on Sunday, and I've, I've loved listening to the sky. And on chapter three, in chapter three, he begins citing Brunovsky as a huge influence, and this is the first time I'd read anybody refer to Brunovsky as an influence, and I was obviously you know quite yeah. charmed by that. Yeah. And then of course it. Another person, Popper, who we've been speaking about, that was an early influence for me, also appears in this book and starts uh, becoming more and more important, and you realise that this guy's Deutsch, is doing this extension of the Popper thing. So there was this kind of convergence. Now another person who I'd been an admirer of for many years is a lesser-known physicist called Leo Zillard, who was the guy who invented, well, he discovered the, um, the atomic explosion process. So it was the technology behind the development of the nuclear bomb. Brilliant Hungarian physicist. Um, But I had come across him also at quite a young age and been very impressed by his moral reasoning. And in particular, by one little letter that he wrote, never translated out of German, so it was written in his second language, which was German. And I loved this letter. It it contained a a list of principles, ways of uh, important principles in life kind of thing. And um, I'd been an admirer for many years, and I mentioned this to somebody who was doing some res- helping me with some research and who went s- scratching around to discover the history of this letter and where it came from and so on. And she produced for me uh, a letter by Zalad's wife with saying responding to a friend who'd asked for an English translation and said, look, uh, Leo was very much against translating. He thought it would lose something if it was taken out of the original German. But one of his friends made an effort at translating it into English, and he said that that was a very good translation, and she attached that translation to the letter. And I was delighted to see this English translation, and as I read this handwritten document, I got to the bottom, and I saw the name, and I thought, wait a second. Yeah. And it was Jakob Bronowski. Sure. So it's sort of <laughs> this, this uh, yeah. You know when 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 these things converge like that it's incredibly rewarding in a way it's, yeah. it's, it's sort of like the universe makes sense again yeah. like, that the people you admire admired the people you thought you were alone in yeah. <laughs> you know, admiring yeah and it, it it sort of um yeah it, it gives you energy for another couple of years when something like that happens in that's, that's how I experience the world anyway. <laughs> Certainly
0: for me yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a huge admirer of Hayek, and I've really been getting yes. into Hayekian economics over the past year or so. And when I picked up my first copy of The Open Society and Its Enemies by Karl Popper, I was delighted yes. to see that you know, he, Hayek was um, an influence of his as well. And vice versa. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, I mean, I, I completely, completely agree with yeah, that. No and no. also, you also strike me as, or oh, not strike me, I know this for a fact, um, that you are very well-read, um, and widely read individual, um, and you obviously um, know the importance of reading and the mm. value that it has. So what would you say to a young person like myself who is desperate to mm. learn as much as they can from much more experienced people like yourself and who just wants to sit down and just read as much as possible and try and absorb as much as possible? An
1: underappreciated person is Thomas Sowell. There are two books in particular that I think were brilliant, the Knowledge and Decisions, and another one called um, the, the, "A Conflict of Visions." Love it, yeah, wonderful books. And and he also would probably list as influential upon him. In fact, I know he does Popper and Hayek, two, the two you've mentioned. Um, but he he's in a different league. From me. That guy uh, really nails this concept of uh, why centralization is so dangerous, and and. He, especially in knowledge and decisions, he spends a lot of time just pointing to the the, the real dangers of um, of, of centralization and accumulation of uh, concentration of power.
0: Look, at you bring in another one of my heroes? <laughs> it, it, it happens all the time. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Sure. So Saul. but as a general piece of advice, let's let's step away from the individuals and the names. A rule of thumb is to favor older books way too much of what people spend their time reading is this week's bestseller. Mm. And uh, what, what I noticed is that there are many books, the most, most books, that get onto a bestseller list are forgotten about very quickly. Mm. What does that tell you? It means that they weren't really that good quality books. They, were, they, they spoke to some kind of passing fad or fashion and were not durable and did not contain much truth or much knowledge. Passing the test of time is a very good sign that a book contains knowledge, and it's, it's a good discipline to wait, give yourself a number, and say, right, three-quarters of the books that I'm going to read are going to be more than 20 years old. In my case, I used the number 50. I, I, sure. I tried to make half the books I read more than 50 years old, and, um, and it was a loose rule of thumb. I probably was in breach of it all the time, but um, it is, that's the idea, is never forget to read the old books because it, those are the ones that, that it's not so much that the ideas retain freshness. A lot of the time the ideas are quite old. But the book's still there because you're, you're peering into the mind of the person who really understood the concept, the developer of the concept. And the clarity and the perspective that comes with that is often just can't be replicated in, even by writers 50 years later possessed of much more knowledge and Technology and uh, capacity to do research and all sorts of things are unable to improve upon. Um, so I I I I think that's an important one is, you know, and it kind of echoes the the whole notion though, of the popperian deutsche analysis that that all knowledge creation all, all knowledge generation is fundamentally evolutionary. Well, what is evolution about? It's it's about passing tests, the test of time. So. We evolve uh, canonical literature, a, can- a literary canon that contains the books that people still read hundreds of years after they were written. And um, that canon is, interestingly, under attack at the moment. It's 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 regarded as some kind of, you know, to say what I've just said is somehow regarded as to make a, um, a sort of a culturally superior statement or uh, some kind of, yeah. you know, I don't care who wrote the book. <laughs> I don't care what country he comes from. Yeah. The fact that people are reading what that person wrote 100 or 500 or 2,000 years ago tells you something about the quality of that person's thoughts, whether he was from, you know, um, uh, Egypt or Rome or America or wherever. It doesn't matter. The book's still being read. Mm. You know, read it. It might tell you something. And And so there's an evolved... Canonical literature. There's nothing wrong with that idea. It's epistemologically sound that books that pass the test of time are recommended to people, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, What's wrong with that idea? Uh, so, So I kind of, I think that's important. And then also just to be constantly mindful of the proportion of books, media articles out there that are truly terrible that if you read them and don't uh, dismiss them, your mind is being polluted with falsehoods. Almost everything that's written at the moment in mainstream media is of this nature. Then It's either completely false or you're wasting your time reading it. It's irrelevant. Um, People need to be mindful of that, not to get trapped into reading too much about current affairs, not to reading too many newspapers, thinking that it's important to stay up to up to date. I think it's a very dangerous, pernicious little notion, and so I push people away from that i I mean I think once before we spoke about the gel, gel man hypothesis, so I won't repeat the story, but the, you know this idea that um you, you kind of uh, you know, in if you look at. How your own field of expertise is reported on in media, you will realize very quickly it's terribly done. And this is true for everybody's field. When they look at their own field, they sure. guard the media as poor. So the extension is that well, in that case, like well, maybe if <laughs> all the experts in, in in the industries agree that the articles in their industry are terrible. That uh, then all of that means kind of that all of the stuff is terrible that's in the mm. in, this, in this very high production rate press. Uh, so so don't be scared of of moving away from that uh, the bestseller, the, uh, the, the, the widely distributed publications, the, the network television programs, just ignore them. You, you won't lose anything. You won't miss out on anything. If there is an event that truly is important, you'll know about it. Somebody will tell you. Yeah. You'll read about it somewhere. But uh, um, it's just not necessary. and uh, a
0: waste of time and energy. You spend more time on the older stuff. Sure. And I think that is a wonderful note to end the conversation on. Really great to see you, and it's been a thoroughly enjoyable conversation, as I knew it would be. Um, So yeah, to the listeners, we are still a non-profitable organization, and we still, by the way, do not run ads on our podcast, and so these podcasts are made entirely possible, or made possible entirely through your own support. Um, So if you enjoyed today's conversation and wish to hear more of these sort of conversations, please feel free to support us on our website at uh, nmonline.co.za. You'll find the support link on there, and you'll just follow there. The website will guide you. Uh, That's nmonline.co.za if you're interested in supporting us. And if you're interested in hearing a lot more of these conversations with with such people as Nick Hudson, um, then please do head over to our website and support us. And Nick, as I've said and will continue to say, it's always great to see you and always great to have a conversation with you. I always emerge after our conversations the far richer of the two, and I can only thank you for it. I enjoy them just as much, so thank you.